Hello friends, here we are at part 4 of the Genesis of Meaning. As you know probably too well, I have taken three episodes and still I haven't got past the first two verses of Genesis 1. As from this episode though, you will probably be happy to know we are going to be speeding up a bit. But first here is a brief reminder of what we're up to. We're looking at how Genesis offers us clues into the meaning of being as something that shows itself to us in our embodied human experience. We're not merely trying to look at the world as an inanimate, distant object out there beyond us. Rather, our perceptions somehow co-create the world as we perceive it. Take a simple object, a chair for example. You might want to define a chair. The Oxford American Dictionary defines it as something that can seat a person and typically has a back and four legs. Of course, a moment's thought reveals that the tail end of that definition is potentially misleading. Typically, a chair may or may not have a back and four legs, but I can think of countless chairs that typically do not have such things. The first part of the definition is right, though. A chair is something we sit on. Sometimes a table is a chair, a tree stump is a chair, a rock is a chair, and so on. What makes it a chair is not some objective, definable feature necessarily, but the way we relate to it, the way we interact with it. So in fact, it is the relationship we have with the chair that comes first, then the definition. And that is what symbols point out, as we'll get to. A symbol is not a sign so much as it is a relation. Things are what they are, first as things we are with, before becoming things we understand in the abstract. As I discussed in the previous episode, there is a way we anticipate the being of things, even before our anticipations are recast in our interactions. The first chapter of Genesis unpacks the creation of the world in six days, and it is easy to miss the fact that, as St. Augustine notes in his commentary on the book of Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth at once. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, as Augustine did, the job is done right there in the first verse, which raises all kinds of questions about the nonsense that people get up to trying to explain the literal process of creation. Of course, they are just missing the actual meaning of the entire passage. Augustine doesn't explore the meaning of creation by talking about how creation unfolds along the lines of several steps in a process, the way we might understand how to follow Lego building instructions or a recipe. First, add light, then divide light from darkness and so on. Rather, he understands the whole thing as there, first and foremost, in God's mind, as a complete thing. Then, it is there in its given material form, also complete because this is how God knows it. Only after it is all there can we begin to discern the parts. And in effect, the rest of the first chapter of Genesis works as a description of those parts. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and he saw that it was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. To explain some of this, it may help to think about a lemon, and then hopefully we can begin to make something resembling conceptual lemonade. 
In his little book, The World of Perception, the phenomenologist Maurice Merleau-Ponty makes mention of how a classic book of psychology might describe how we perceive a simple object, like a lemon. This lemon, it might explain, is a bulging oval shape with two ends, plus this yellow color, plus this fresh feel, plus this acidic taste. At a glance, this sounds fine, but on closer inspection, we realize that this is not how we actually experience a lemon. We don't, at first, perceive the lemon as this object consisting of all these different properties. We do not add up the elements and then arrive, by deduction or inference, at the conclusion, ah, yes, it really is a lemon. The unity of the object of perception is not an afterthought. It's not something that emerges from a process of data collection. Merleau-Ponty writes, the unity of the object does not lie behind its qualities, but is reaffirmed by each one of them, each of its qualities is the whole. This is to say, we always begin with the whole first, then we enter into its parts. By distinguishing the parts of the object, we also then don't arrive at neatly distinct properties all separate from each other. Rather, we arrive back at the wholeness of the object. Jean-Paul Sartre in Being and Nothingness writes about how each attribute reveals the being of the object. The lemon is extended through its qualities and each of its qualities is extended through each of the others. It is the sourness of the lemon which is yellow. It is the yellow of the lemon which is sour. This is something that in certain contemplative states can actually be realized at a deep level. Just the other day, while I was walking through the suburbs on a cloudy day, this sense of how beings interpenetrate each other in a field of meaning became profoundly apparent to me. It's not just that I was concentrating on making this happen, it simply happened as I allowed my consciousness to recede from my visual field and simply feel what was happening in and through me, through my senses. I could feel, for example, how the ground that held everything around me was the same ground I was walking on how the same ground dressed in paving looked a particular way because of the clouds above my head, how my experience of being out walking was colored by the cool of the morning air and how the sound of my feet affected the shade of green in the trees. I could pick up on the details of the experience, but the first thing I knew was a wholeness confirmed by each individual element. The state of serenity I was in also changed the way the world felt. I happened not to be thinking about anything in particular, so the world appeared more vividly than it usually does when I'm attending to abstractions, like I am right now. In this state, in attending to just being present, the world is always already brimming with meaning and meaning possibilities. And yet, here I am now in my study at home explaining this to you, putting the concrete experience into language rooted in a particular interpretation of the experience itself. After any experience, I may take some further steps to try to discern even deeper meaning found perhaps in the connection of this experience to some other thought or experience. I may even begin to discern something approximating not just knowledge, but wisdom. When we are told that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, we are in effect told that God made two interpenetrating dimensions of experience that are always bound up together. On the one hand, in making heaven, he made meaning without matter. 
In other words, he made a form requiring earthly expression. On the other hand, in making earth, he made matter without meaning, something requiring formation. Heaven informs while earth expresses the form. In other words, heaven is the divine principle, the word, the reason for being. Earth is the stuff through which the word will take on material, will become flesh, and will therefore cease to be formless and void. Any symbol would be what allows us access to this double reality at the same time. It would help us to see the spiritual and the material as non-competitive sides of the same coin of reality. A symbol allows us to see the function of the interaction between heaven and earth. It allows us to notice, for instance, that heaven is in the business of setting up order. Earth is about revealing that order. The symbol manifests both, as we see, for example, in the symbolic language of Genesis itself. Heaven represents order, earth represents chaos. But the symbolic conjunction of heaven and earth reveals how both relate to each other to produce life. That is the point, by the way, of symbols and realities, to affirm and produce life. Heaven refines matter, earth materializes meaning. When God reveals his name to Moses on Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus, he echoes this structure in the symbol that is his name. He explains, I am what I am. In other words, I am in words what I am in deeds. I am in the beginning as I am in the end. I am in transcendence as I am in Christ's embodied presence. As the ancient rabbis were always quick to point out, Genesis has a strong sociological dimension. The idea, which we find in the book of Proverbs, in chapters 4 and chapter 8, is that God creates through wisdom. This means, among other things, that the experience of being is always unfulfilled, where wisdom is not found. Wisdom discerns right from wrong, just as it discerns day from night. In fact, there is an idea that resounds throughout the first chapter of Genesis, namely the idea of separation. Yes, we experience all things at once, but only wisdom is able to genuinely discern the meaning of things by perceiving the limits of things. This is something we learn in Proverbs 8, verse 22 to 36. And I would highly recommend that you read Proverbs 8, verse 22 to 36 in the light of what you read in Genesis 1. This is one significance of the fact that the book of Genesis goes step by step through God's separating day and night, waters and waters, land and sea. Thus, for instance, he allocates birds to the sky, fish to the sea, bugs and animals to the land and people as mediators of the whole of creation, also to the land, mostly. If you build a boat, you might occasionally be in the water like Noah. We will have to come back to people at a later stage, but just very briefly, it's worth noting that people are a combination of heaven and earth. We are spirit and dirt. So in this creation poem, God gathers certain things together and in gathering and ordering them, certain other things appear. Think of a sculptor like Michelangelo working tirelessly chipping away at a piece of marble until as if by a miracle, but also clearly by his decision-making and hard work, a Pieta or a David appears. 
wisdom discerns in order to reveal and in order to affirm created being, in order to generate more life. In the intimate intertwining of heaven and earth, we see most clearly that Genesis is not about how things were made as much as it is about how to live meaningfully. To live meaningfully requires living symbolically. Every true symbol gathers together something of this double experience of meaning, the unity of meaning and matter, the unity of heaven and earth. Every true symbol is a gesture towards the meaning of being that phenomenology tries to seek out. It is not just about making sense, but is about finding it. We live in an age often characterized, quite rightly I believe, by a pervasive crisis of meaning. This is an idea I want to return to again, but just briefly, this was something predicted and particularly well observed by Friedrich Nietzsche, who contended that modernity itself can be understood as a spreading of nihilism, which in turn is characterized by a continuous, almost frantic and panicked revaluation of values. Martin Heidegger sums all of this up very nicely in his essay, The Word of Nietzsche, God is Dead. Nihilism, Heidegger suggests, means a continuous checking and rechecking and often reinventing of what we deem valuable, given its assumption that intrinsic value is not real. If we have no immediately obvious access to the meaningful, we will need, as Nietzsche contends, to posit being on the endless self-deconstructing flux of becoming. Given the state of things, in other words, the best we can do is impose our invented meanings on the world. What matters most in a nihilistic age, and I guess in a nihilistic mindset, is therefore not the discovery of meaning, but the imposition of will. Nietzsche wanted to end up with a clear way to do this, but he never managed to get it right. In fact, we have landed up in an age characterized not only by various contexts of arbitrary will, but with a general state of undifferentiation. Ours is an age in which discernment is greatly lacking. Not that I need to tell any of you this. People who do not attend to the being of things are prone to setting up false distinctions, that is, distinctions in the wrong place, or failing to set up distinctions at all. I don't know if I need to supply examples of this. Maybe you can think of someone, or maybe you are that someone, who has simply failed to attend to being and its various limits, and how that has messed them or you up. Maybe a simple example is that so few people get enough sleep these days. That means not attending to being the distinction between day and night set up in Genesis. Chesterton is one of the people who did attend to the limits of things very much, and I believe it's one of the reasons for his astonishing perspicacity. He once noted that it is wise before tearing down a fence to figure out why it was put up. Well, we now live in an age of torn-down fences and torn-down statues. Instead of allowing themselves the favor of genuinely learning from the past, for instance, so many people just throw an accusation someone's way and assume that the accusation offers a genuine substitute for understanding. Chesterton describes his own time as dominated by the negative spirit, and I think the label applies well to us still. This is the inevitable result of the loss of a sense of divine and institutional support, which Nietzsche's work gestures to. With this loss, it's simply easier to know what to move away from 
than what to pursue. It is, in other words, easier to know what not to want than what to want. The doctor who can tell what a healthy body looks like when it is diseased now finds it difficult to know what a healthy soul looks like when it is unwell. Discernment is applied to earth, but it seems there is an unawareness of how heaven might inform this. As Chesterton explains, the greatest certainties are now certainties of what is wrong. People may know very well how to diagnose the cultural world's many imperfections, but are less adept in general at knowing what perfection people ought to be aiming for. We agree about the evil, Chesterton writes, it is about the good that we should tear each other's eyes out. But Chesterton argues that it is discernment about what is good that is needed first. In his marvellous book, What's Wrong with the World, he writes that people have it wrong when they say we need more practicality when it comes to the chaos of the world. This would amount, in the language of this episode, to wanting more earth when actually we need more heaven. Chesterton responds that it would be far truer to say that when things go very wrong, we need an unpractical man. Certainly, at least, we need a theorist. He goes on, A practical man means a man accustomed to mere daily practice, to the way things commonly work. When things will not work, you must have the thinker, the man who has some doctrine about why they work at all. It is wrong to fiddle while Rome is building, but it is quite right to study the theory of hydraulics while Rome is burning. I love this passage and the book that it is in. It gets to the fact that it does us no real good to have so much to say about what is wrong with the world if we don't have an ideal to point to first. I love how the first chapter of Genesis finishes each day, each day of separating and forming and filling, with God seeing that it is good. Unfortunately, I don't have time to go into what this means, all of it at least, but I do have time to point out just one important dimension of this. Goodness generates life. It does not trap the world or the self in a prison of narcissistic self-enclosure, but opens all of these things up to new life. I'll need to come back to this in a little more detail in the next episode, though, so I hope you will join me for that. Before I go, though, a brief reminder that you can support me on Patreon if you'd like to at patreon.com forward slash unorthodoxy. As always, thank you so much to all of you who do support me. I am very grateful. Take care, everyone. Take care, everyone.